Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice where we use books to make sense of our environmental crisis and think about where to go next. Uh, I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today's guests are Alice Creary and Lori Gruen. They are the authors of the new book, Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. Alice is a moral and social philosopher who's a professor at the New School, and Lori is a professor at Wesleyan uh, in animal studies and feminist philosophy. Throughout the interview, we talk about um, why they are dissatisfied with some of the predominant ways of approaching animal ethics, um, and how a new approach might pay more attention to other animals as they are, rather than treating them as, as mere abstractions. So that's what we talk about in the interview. I really enjoyed um, the chance to speak with them. If you enjoy listening to them, um, please consider uh, following this podcast, liking it, uh, rating it, um, what have you. Um, You can make sure you get future episodes sent to your inbox uh, by signing up for my free weekly newsletter um, where I send out new episodes, updates, um, information about the Storytelling Animals Book Club, Um, And a link to the best thing I read each week. Um, Speaking of the Storytelling Animals Book Club, um, I just finished reading As Long as Grass Grows, um, which is a book by Dina Julia Whitaker on indigenous environmental justice, a nonfiction book that we will be discussing um, at our next meeting, August 23rd. Um, That's two weeks away, so you still have plenty of time to read the book, pick up a copy. if you wish to join, uh, the two ways to do that are, like I said, um, join the free newsletter for a free trial membership of the book club. To join on a more permanent basis, um, support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash storytellingpod at the Lorax tier or above. Um, I should say, too, that in September, uh, Thursday, September 29th, uh, the book club will be discussing... The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, a novel about a near future um, ravaged by climate change and inequality and other social issues that you are probably familiar with. Um, so yes, if you wish to join that as well, um, there's more information in on the book club in the episode description. Um, and whether or not you want to join the book club, I do want to put in a shout out to those who do attend and to those who subscribe uh support this podcast on patreon at any level um is very helpful to yeah make allow me to sort of make the space to work on this every month um and put out a few episodes for you um enough of all that uh here is my interview with alice Crary and Lori Gruen. Alice Crary and Lori Gruen, the authors of Animal Crisis. Um, Alice and Lori, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for, thanks having, for us. having us. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm curious, uh, and you write about it a little in the introduction, but um, I'd love to hear more about how this book uh, came to be, especially in how you two came to work together uh, and sort of decide on, on what the, the scope and focus of, of your book would be. Well, thanks for asking that, Dayton. This is Lori. Um, I, um, I've been working on animal issues for quite a long time, as has Alice. 
Um, and as we say in the in the beginning of the book, we we happen to be in Princeton, New Jersey, at the same time, and decided that it would be even though we were both working on different projects when we came together, we decided it would be really um, terrific to start thinking together about just the intense crisis that we're in as um, as humans, but also in relationship to other animals. And part of the concern that we wanted to explore in the book and that we do explore in the book is a concern that the traditional ways of thinking about our relationships with non-human animals that's represented in um, the philosophical literature and animal ethics, which is an area that both Alice and I work in, was really inadequate to the magnitude of the crises. And so we wanted to highlight the ways in which this the problems with our way of thinking about these human-animal relations was itself, that, that way of thinking was also in crisis. And so our desire to explore some of the ways that existing theories go wrong was one of the big motivations. And of course, the central motivation was just the environmental and, and um, sort of awful corporate greed that's causing so many humans and non-humans and the rest of the planet to suffer. Mm -hmm. And Alice, is there anything to add or does that more or less cover it? Oh, I, I love listening to Lori talk about our book and I thought she did a really, a, a really great job. And I, I think, you know, there, there are more details to how we arrived at the project together um, and I'd love to talk about them. Here's one interesting feature of the book. We had the idea early on that um, we really didn't want to treat animals in the book in exactly the way Laurie was just talking about as abstractions, that we would center the book around a series of cases, which is the way it's structured. It's seven cases. And one interesting feature of the book that your listeners might be interested in is that we eventually came to incorporate a photograph for each case. And we tried to use those photographs in a way that would lead readers in and make the cases more accessible. So they became part of the book, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely want to um, expand further later on, on sort of the importance of those cases and this idea of um, why we it's a mistake to treat these other creatures as abstractions. Um, but first, just to kind of orient everyone, um, you know, we've talked about animal issues on this podcast before, so probably some listeners at least are, are familiar with these issues, but um, I'd say maybe the average environmentalist knows about the climate crisis, maybe the biodiversity crisis, um, but animal crisis is a... I think a, a compelling and useful um, term. And what what is the range of issues you're thinking about when when you're thinking about an animal crisis? One well, one way of thinking about this, of course, is that humans are animals, and often we think about humans and as being distinct from animals. But one of the central issues for our book is to show the way that the structures that exist to devastate. Um, humans and animal life are structures that um, impact humans just as it, as they impact animals. And so part of um, the idea of animal crisis is to show that the horrible things that we do to animals by cutting down their habitats um, in order to 
plant monocrops, say, with palm oil plantations, or the extraordinary violence that we cause animals in slaughterhouses in the industrial food system also does tremendous harm to immigrant workers and workers of color. And we also talk about um, the ways that the um, sort of exotic pet trade um, has devastated all sorts of groups of um, animals, but also um, often native populations. And so there's a way in which what we're trying to get at in animal crisis is, um, by using the term animal crisis, is this crisis of that gets excluded and often overlooked. But it's really central to the other crises that you name, the crisis, the environmental crisis or the climate crisis, or even the crisis that, you know, that art is facing so many human beings on the planet. Mm-hmm. So the, the two uh, dominant strains of animal ethics um, that, or I don't know if dominant is, is the right term, but two popular ones anyway that many people might be familiar with um, have historically come out of either utilitarianism uh, or more rights-based theories. Um, and you have your critiques of, of both of them, um, but let's start with utilitarian or consequentialist approaches, um, which, you know, on this podcast, I've mentioned the in past episodes, the, the famous quote from Jeremy Bentham in the 1700s of, you know, the question is not, can they talk or can they reason, but can they suffer? And this idea that suffering really is, um, is the primary thing that we need to be thinking about when it comes to uh, treating other animals better. Um, and on the surface, maybe it does seem like suffering is pretty important because if you look at a factory farm or a research lab or whatever, there's certainly a lot of suffering going on. Um, and so maybe, yeah, you think that's the main bad thing. But what do we lose when we focus so heavily on suffering to the exclusion of, of other issues that might be going on? Uh, this is Alice. That's a really, really great question, Dayton, and one that we take really seriously. So, so as you describe it, right, utilitarianism is focused on welfare, on minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure. And, um, when, when we're writing about utilitarianism, we have, um, some cri- theoretical criticisms of it, and we also have respect for it in aspects. And one way to characterize what we're saying is that this exclusive focus on welfare actually distorts morality. It's not that attention to suffering, it's, it's incredibly important, but it's not everything. And the really concrete issue or problem that comes up when you have this kind of um, single focus theory um, in connection with the kinds of systems that Laurie was just describing. You have complex social systems that bring together devastating injustices to human beings with sort of almost unfathomable harms to to animals in places like um, industrial animal agriculture and slaughterhouses and places where you have de- deforestation for things like palm oil plantations. The problem is, is that say, let's take the case of industrial animal farming. Say that you try to decrease suffering 
by increasing cage sizes for animals, then that seems good in isolation. But the problem is you haven't challenged the larger social structure that have led to the system altogether. And you run the risk, actually, by pairing with the industrial interests, which are, um, you know, processing and killing animals. You know, they're working with you, say, to increase cage sizes. You run the risk of strengthening a system that is going to continue relentlessly producing, killing, tormenting animals again and again, while also reproducing harms to humanly humans. So even though your intention may be to do real good, you can inadvertently worsen not only the situation of animals, but also of human beings. And if I could just add another, um, an example that we use in the book, and I think is a really useful way of thinking about another problem with utilitarianism more generally, and that is that um, it's there. The, as Alice said beautifully, um, suffering is something that is extraordinarily important, and it's an achievement of the utilitarian thinkers to extend suf- the idea that animals suffer um, beyond humans, right? So that the, the notion that any being, like you were saying, Dayton, Jer- Jeremy Bentham says it's not whether you can speak or whether, you know, in fact, you're a human, but whether you can suffer that makes you matter morally. And that is a really important achievement. But there's another part of the problem with utilitarianism, and that has to do with their inability to talk about um, the wrongness of killing, for example, um, or the dignity violations or the relational violations that occur when you're talking about slaughterhouses. And Alice alluded to this, but in the book, we talk about um, this particular cow named Norma, who was on a quote unquote, humane farm, um, which is one of these farms that is supposedly good, you know, like, it, it treats the animals well. And, but what ended up happening is that when they went to take away Norma's infant Nina, which is part of the dairy industry, you have to take, you have to have pregnant cows um, in order to produce dairy. Many people amazingly are not as familiar with this cycle, but you have to have pregnant cows in order to um, have a regular um, production of milk. And in order to get that, you have to take the infants away from the mothers so that the infants aren't using the milk that they need to grow and, and, um, and have good nutrition so that that milk can be taken and given to people. So in this case of Norma, they were going to take Nina away from her um, and she didn't want them to. And so she used her horns to hurt one of the workers in this so-called humane uh, dairy. And one of the things that happened, which is lovely, and we talk about it in the book, is that the worker didn't want Norma killed um, and rather wanted Norma to go to sanctuary, which is indeed what happened. But from a utilitarian point of view, and this is the point, is that the utilitarians can't really say that Nina should go to sanctuary. Indeed, the utilitarian view is that because Nina could replace Norma on this happy farm, um, that as long if Nina was as if Norma was killed painlessly, then she would um, that there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. And that I think shows in a very concrete way some of the sort of inadequacy of a utilitarian way of thinking when it comes to other animals. Mm -hmm. I think um, I should say that, uh, you know, as an undergraduate, I took a couple classes with Peter Singer, who's sort of the prominent utilitarian animal liberation thinker. Um, And I, you know, especially when I, I took my first class with him as a freshman, um, I was totally hooked by his approach. Um, 
to his great credit, I think it opened my eyes to a lot of issues. And one of them was uh, industrial farming. And I became so horrified by the suffering involved. But it, it took me a while to um, then kind of take that next step toward thinking about, wait, what about, you know, so-called humane farming? Um, and I think, uh, you know, a, a common response in the ethical literature uh, might be to go um, towards some some version of a rights-based approach um, where we might say, you know, another animal has a right to not be in a cage or a right not to, to their life um, or, you know, in, in the Kantian terminology to be used, to not be used as a means to an end. Um, but the, you, you're not sure the Kantian legacy is, is sufficient um, to the problem either. Uh, so what are, again, kind of the, the strengths and, and the, the weaknesses of, of this approach? Um, I'll, this is Alice again, Dayton. I'll, I'll lean for a moment. It's actually, I, I think, um, um, some of the theoretical issues get complicated, but there's some really straightforward things to be said about rights-based approaches. And the, the, the hedging you hear me, um, engaging in about theory, which I wouldn't want to tire people with is just that um, one needs to make a distinction between some really familiar rights-based approaches in animal ethics and some work that's do being done on content animals today. But if you just sort of take the kind of rights-based approach that I think um, for most people who've taken an undergraduate animal ethics class or might be interested in animal ethics, that they encounter it's going to be something like in the work of someone like Tom Regan mm -hmm. um, that's been really influential. And, and there you are often thinking um, about inviolable rights. So so maybe the suggestion is that we're not going to eat, un, you know, harvest animals, reproductive organs, and, uh, um, and slaughter them at all. On the other hand, um, so, so there's a lot of great work. It, again, as with utilitarian, I think to utilitarianism, Lori and I both believe that a lot of really important work um, and and um, really thoughtful interventions have been done under the rubric of rights-based approaches to animal ethics. But there is a danger, especially with some um, of the most familiar existing rights-based approaches, that what you're doing is, in a sense, carving out uh, an area of inviolability, like this can't be done to animals, this can't be done to animals, or they have even positive rights to certain things, to certain kinds of respect. And all that sounds great in isolation, but it's still a problem of the same kind you have with utilitarian theories if you're not looking at the larger system. So if you're not looking back at what it means to be in roughly speaking, capitalist societies in which enterprises are organized around production and profit, and you have these pressures on things like industrial animal agricultural, on things like the production of palm oil, on things like the exotic animal trade. I'm choosing all the examples that Lori has so nicely brought up. And, and so you have larger social structures which are going to reproduce harms, maybe relocate them if you create structures of rights without trying to think about resistance to the structures themselves. So that would be a way of capturing what's distinctive about what we're doing and what distinguishes it even from standard rights-based approaches. Although, a, uh, an approach based on positive rights could be very much in line with what we're doing if it's focused on these larger structures. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think that um, something that's come up a couple times um, is this idea that many of these other ethical approaches to other animals don't necessarily um, look at things from a systemic lens. And I think this maybe is also related to why um, a lot of sort of mainstream vegan advocacy groups that I think do a lot of great work um, are often focused on um, individual diet change and convincing individual people to become vegetarians and vegans. And to be clear, I think this is really important, but maybe part of what you're getting at, or at least part of what I'm taking away from it, is that, um, you know, looking at the individual choice level is, is one level of analysis, but there's also this analysis of how political and economic and social systems interact to create a society where other animals are oppressed. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, the subtitle of your book is a, a new critical theory. Um, what makes the theory critical, uh, for, for those who are unfamiliar with the term and, and why, why do we need that for, for other animals? If I could, um, just before we, I think that's a really important question, Dayton, and we'll answer that question. I just wanted to make a couple of comments about what you just said about individual, um, individual changes and mm-hmm. eating a vegan diet and that sort of thing. And I, and how you said it was important. And I think it's important, but as well, and I think we both think it's really important, but part of the reason, at least um, one of the very important reasons that go becoming vegan matters is not because it's necessarily going to do anything in terms of changing the vast corporate injustices and violence of the food system, um, but rather because, in my, I think in our view, it helps us to better see what's happening in our own lives. When you're eating bodies of animals and you're pretending that they're not bodies of animals, um, you're actually, uh, you know, engaged in a kind of what we call in the book ideology that occludes these relationships, that hides these relationships. And that is something that allows the structures, at least reinforces the structures, allows them to carry on as they do. And so one of the really important things that I think and we think is um, comes from going vegan, let's say, is not that you're going to somehow save five pigs and two cows and dozens of chickens in your lifetime, which is often the rhetoric, um, but rather that you're going to put yourself in a better position to fully unpack the various ways that animal lives and animal deaths are obscured or hidden from view. So I think that's a really important um, reason for being vegan, it's a little bit different than the reason that most people usually give. And that does come out of the system of utilitarianism and more traditional rights theories. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I want to follow up on that. Um, oh, do <laughs> <laughs> go um, right ahead. Cause there's so much to be said. And to be honest, Lori's written about it really beautifully. Um, and, and veganism is a topic people so often understand as a kind of, uh, you know, privileged, white, able-bodied stance for people who can afford to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, and not as a political orientation, a kind of aspiration to see various, you know, political structures that, among other things, um, are involved in 
um, obstructing access to healthy food in economically marginalized communities in urban areas, often non-white communities predominantly, and um, structures that are also um, problematic for indigenous communities who rely on hunting for subsistence. So, so we're trying to, one of the things we're trying to do in the book, even although this is a sort of implicit line of thought in the book, is reorient how someone might reinterpret veganism, not as some kind of really unhelpful individual elite position, but as a political position, as Laurie says, that that involves trying to register the economic and political structures that create these different problems. Mm -hmm. Those are just great questions. And I'm enjoying the answers. So (laughs) I think that the, yeah, the the other thing that came out through that is um, this idea of really needing to move away from thinking of other animals as abstractions um, and yeah, I, I think when I, when I went vegan, maybe nine years ago, I think, um, it was, I was, it was not that I was like, I, it was mainly because I was concerned about other animals, but I think I'm much more, I was able to become more concerned about them after I went vegan in a way, if that makes sense. Right. And that right. it like created Absolutely. space to, um, you know, to really start seeing them not as food anymore, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. but as mm-hmm. actual, you know, individuals. And so, yeah, I, I think when we, one of the things that you emphasize in the book, um, and, and that your, your anecdotes of specific, um, animals such as, such as the cows you mentioned, Lori, um, are, are so important to is that we, you want us to move away from seeing other animals as um, either just like, you know, a monolithic category um, or, uh, you know, as furry humans or as furry deficient humans, as is often the case, or a receptacle for pain and pleasure. Um, But as, you know, each kind of distinct types of beings that, um, yeah, see them as themselves rather than, as they are in comparison to us. Um, so can, yeah, can, I guess, can you talk about um, why this was so important to your project in the book? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is, um, is crucial. And as you, uh, just as you said, I mean, I think quite, quite um, pointedly that there's a way in which um, this, this traditional, you know, ways of thinking about animals is to, um, either think of them as abstractions like the pigs or the chimpanzees and not recognize a series of differences that you might um, observe um, between the pigs and between uh, the chimpanzees and that they that they're not a monolith that they have their own distinct interests their own pleasures their own personalities uh, their own relationships with one another some animals uh, let's let's just say chimpanzees some chimpanzees really like other chimpanzees and hate other chimpanzees. And so to generalize and say, oh, chimpanzees are like this, um, misses the, their particular ways of being and in some ways turns them into um, a mass term, turns them into just a category that has some individuals that populate it, but you know nothing about them. And part of our work is to try to really um, 
highlight the relationships that animals have with each other, maybe with other humans, and the ways in which they make very individual, particular kinds of choices um, as they make their way through a human-oriented anthropocentric world. And and that's a re- one really important strand and part of the reason that we start um, each of the chapters, as Alice said um, earlier, with both a photograph and, and a kind of case is that we really do want the the richness of these um, lives to come into view, as it were. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important about, and this gets back to your earlier question about our subtitle, A New Critical Theory, is that one of the things that um, is really important is to recognize that um, the the ways that these structures operate um, that oppress and harm and injure both what gets called marginalized humans, humans that are part of social outgroups, and animals too, is this um, sort of hierarchical process in which they are, if you are not exactly like a sort of the standard bearer of our social systems, usually white, cisgendered, straight men, then you, you, you fall somewhere below that. And in order to matter, in order to count, in order to be valuable in traditional ways of thinking, you have to assimilate somehow to that standard. And what we're trying to highlight is look at that structure already. Is the project, is the liberatory project one in which you're assimilating to that standard? Or is the liberatory project to recognize that that standard is flawed and these hierarchies are injurious. So that's part of the move of a, a critical theory is to recognize these, not just um, economic, but of course economic, not just these social, but of course these social, not not just this material kind of concerns, but this very deep ideological value system um, that sort of devalues everyone that doesn't um, fit that norm. Yeah, I think that um, that brings out, you know, another theme in your book that's worth exploring, which is that, um, you know, many scholars and activists for justice among humans um, have historically argued for the preciousness of humanity um, or the, the importance of, of treating humans with justice um, precisely by differentiating ourselves from our animality and, and maybe talking about the ways in which we transcend our animality. Um, and uh, you, but you see this approach as dangerous, not just for other animals, um, but for ourselves as well. Um, so, so what is that danger and what's a more alternative way of looking at that? Uh, this is, an, I mean, this is Alice. This is an incredibly important question, Adam. Uh, um, Dayton and and the things Laurie was just saying really lead up to it. So um, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book, building on the themes that Laurie was just talking about, uh, her themes of um, structures of hierarchies that are created between humans and animals, between elite humans and people who are seen as somehow lower. Um, um, we talk about, uh, I want to back up, sorry, just a minute and say, there's a, a line of thought in our book, which is about sympathizing. 
in the sense of understanding why it is that oppressed groups of human beings often express their struggles for liberation by saying, we're human beings, we're not animals. And one of the things we're doing in the book is tracing the sources of that political logic and talking about um, really central ways in which human beings dehumanize each other through what gets called animalization. That is strategies of using comparisons to animals to demean human beings. And um, we talk about or show how animalization is partly constitutive of categories of, say, race, gender, and disability. There's amazing work on these topics about how categories of species and categories of race and also gender and ability come into existence together and are themselves interrelated. Against that backdrop, it makes sense, it's understandable that oppressed human groups will try to achieve liberation by showing that they're human beings. And so I'm saying this, as it were, with scare quotes, above animals. But one of the things we're trying to do in Animal Crisis is provide an alternative narrative that makes it possible to see that that logic is intelligible, understandable, and also that there's another fundamental sense in which it's counterproductive. And I should say that there's a really amazing body of work by animal advocates who are also involved in social justice movements who are, are, are telling this story and we're following and telling our, our version of this story, um, about why it is problematic to pursue human liberation by um, resubjecting animals, by resubjugating them and insisting that we're superior to them. And that's a really complicated story. I'm sure Laurie will want to add something to what I'm going to say, but here are some of the elements of it. I mean, first, there's simply the fact that there's work in social psychology about the existence of causal links between thought and conduct that place animals below humans, that should just give us pause. So thought and conduct that place animals below humans and the dehumanizing treatment of human outgroups. So if your liberating move is to say, hey, we're above animals, um, you're creating, it looks like a causal situation in which the oppression of outgroups is likelier. Um, but you're also um, reasserting the devaluation of animal life. And obviously, one of the things in our book that we're doing is we're insisting on values, on kind of dignity for animals, that which is often denied. Um, and so the move is problematic in that way. Um, but you're also operating within the kinds of hierarchies that Laurie was just describing, where you have um, the creation of a category of human which is designed to exclude groups of human beings who are understood as lower. And so by trying to occupy that space, if that's what your liberating move looks like, you're simply keeping in place uh, patterns of thought and behavior which are designed to exclude some human beings. Um, you're you're not, as it were, questioning the construction of a category of elite exclusive humanity. And one of the things that we're doing is pushing back against logics of dehumanization and animalization, not just by revising them, but by pointing out that the very hierarchical structure or taxonomy needs to be undone because it's part of a system that devastates humans as well as animals. Yeah, and if I can just be a little more, um, 
just give an example of this, and I think it it's a helpful example. Um, so one of the things that happens a lot within um, the this assimilationist idea that um, I was referring to, or this process that Alice was just so um, brilliantly speaking about in terms of animalization and dehumanization, is that again you try to get um, you try to show that some beings are similar. Um, in different dimensions to those that are thought to have the most value. And this is really um, a very central and attention-grabbing kind of part that some animal advocates um, sort of do. So if you think about the, the recent legal battle over Happy the Elephant at the Bronx Zoo that many of your listeners may have heard about because it was a very high-profile legal case, Essentially, what um, the lawyers and the animal advocates and the philosophers um, were all arguing is that Happy the Elephant is autonomous, that she can recognize herself in the mirror, that she has these cognitive capacities that we extend, um, you know, habeas corpus to if they were had by human beings. And so, of course, animals are not part of the human legal system, and that was um, not uh, an accident, but the idea is that this is this is a strategy of sameness that is um, operating within the animal movement all the time. Um, it, but it's an extensionist project. It, it extends. It says if you want to be in the center of the moral universe, if you want to be in the center of who matters, you have to share these capacities of those who are now at the top of the hierarchy or at the top of the taxonomy. And that will, just as Alice was saying, that will exclude other human beings. That will exclude other animals. That this isn't a project that is fundamentally liberatory or inclusive. So instead, what we argue is that we should value difference and not use a system that identifies a certain set of capacities that are morally important to some at the top and see which others that aren't at the top have those capacities. No, what we should be doing is, as Alice said, recognizing and respecting the dignity of other beings, human and non-human, and also the meaning of their relationships with one another and the value of those relationships with one another. And those may be very, very different than anything we can identify um, with those at the human center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it allows for, I think the sometimes you sort of end up with a ranking too of, you know, humans are more valuable than chimpanzees are more valuable than pigs are more valuable than chickens. Exactly. Um, and yeah. that, yeah, paying attention to the differences and, and kind of each animal in its fullness rather than each animal as it compares to us sort of allows for a different way of, um, of approaching this. And, and you, I mean, You've, you've touched on this definitely in this conversation. Um, but maybe to, to dig a little deeper, I think I'm, I'm, I'm fully with you that, that sort of this is a, an unsatisfying and, and damaging approach. But I think maybe the reason that people might look to, um, comparisons to human traits, uh, is, is maybe a similar reason that people look to, you know, something like a simple, um, metric like pleasure and pain, which is that we're, we're trying to look for something to ground, um, to ground our ideas about, uh, 
who is owed ethical consideration. Um, and if, if we are unsatisfied with, um, yeah, I guess unsatisfied with, with some of the approaches that other others have on offer, then like what, how do we orient ourselves ethically without kind of the, the familiar, um, I don't know what the word is, the, the, the familiar categories of, oh, because they're like us or, oh, because suffering, I know what that means. Um, and I don't know, like we've talked about things like dignity and relationships um, that, uh, yeah, how do we, how do we orient our ethics using tools like that instead? I think this is, I think you've really, you've really identified a, a block people can have when they start to do animal ethics. And I think, and we think this comes out in the book that it's not an accidental block and it, and it comes, we address it in all sorts of ways in the book. Um, but at base, um, one of the things that's at issue is actually thinking about, I know this sounds abstract, but in a way it's not thinking about the methods that are available to us in ethics. So, what you get in mainstream animal ethics a lot is the idea that the activity of engaging with looking at animals, trying to see what they're like, isn't itself part of ethics. What you need is your theory. You need mm -hmm. your account of, of, you know, your utilitarian calculations or your rights oriented theory and then you're going to get your data which is you know information you might take from ethology or cognitive ethology about what animals are like and then you're going to apply your ethical theory to that and so one thing to say about why our book has the subtitle it does a new critical theory is that we're not doing theory in that familiar sense where what's at issue is theory application we're talking about um um, appreciating the kinds of challenges we face in trying to get animals into view in a way that aligns that effort with um, a lot of um, radical social thought, which is sometimes describes itself as liberating theorizing, but it's really different from th theory application. The idea is it takes an effort of engagement, sometimes of imagination, sometimes shifting perspectives in order to bring the creatures and the suffering of creatures into view, which means that once you've got them in view, you've already got a normative orientation. And that's actually a point that gets made with regard to the suffering of oppressed humans in the work of radical feminists, say, Bell Hooks and Angela Davis, and also with regard to oppressed, the suffering of oppressed humans with founding members of the Frankfurt School, take the work of Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. And that's one of the reasons we call what we're doing critical theory, a critical theory, because we're critical theorizing in the same way. We're not giving a grand theory of how to intervene with animals. We're talking about what it requires of us to pay attention to the lives and circumstances and relations of animals and how that effort is itself normatively orienting. And so the question, this perplexity that comes up for people about what is the ground is an expression of an intellectual landscape, which seems to suggest 
you can't get an ethical orientation by paying attention to the world. And we are challenging that. Because um, then it seems like, gosh, you need something else to get you going. And so there, you can't have this importance placed on the actual attention to the creatures whose sufferings matter. And I just, I, I thought what Alice said was just brilliant. So I, I don't have that much to add, but I did want to just also suggest that part of um, the question about, well, what, if we get rid of utilitarianism or rights-based theories, what do we do? Um, assumes that actually the answers the action guiding answers that you get from those methods of, of thinking get you into a moral space that's better. And I think that there's a real question given, um, the propensity for human error about even assuming that those are going to get you what you're looking for. So another way of putting that is it's often thought that these theories tell you what to do and what what Laurie and Alice are doing doesn't tell you what to do and and in some sense that's kind of okay but is what you're being told to do in the other way of thinking in any way um, going to bring about a more just a less violent a more liberatory world and I think part of what we're we're thinking is that we need a different way of approaching these issues that is that does um, draw on you know important social theories um, that have helped us to see the world anew so that we could imagine a different set of relations. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think what you both just said is, is such an, I think, an important uh, summation of kind of at its heart what it is that your book um, does differently than, than most other works in the field um, and, and why that's promising. I think... Um, yeah, well, okay. So if, if we're thinking that it's important to really try to see other creatures and um, figure out, you know, our relationships with them, um, I think, is there is there a concern that maybe it's easier to to see, um, you know, a, a dog or a cat or even like a, a crow or pigeon who, you know, I might see in, in the city versus... Uh, you know, creatures that live under the sea or under the soil or on some distant island. Um, and how can we, uh, I guess, I guess a concern I have about, um, and I, I, I think your book sort of addresses this too, but like that ground, that putting too much stock into our relationships or some people might have a certain conception that, oh, I have a, like a stronger relationship with like my immediate surroundings and not pay attention to the ways in which we are interconnected with the rest of the world. And I think, you know, the short answer is obviously that we, we are, and, you know, the orangutan thousands of miles away, whose home is being destroyed due to palm oil plantations. Like, even though they're thousands of miles away, yeah, I like, I have a relationship with them through, you know, the palm oil and the food that I buy and like the, the corporations that are funded by, you know, Whatever, and, and I think the, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot uh, that's really promising and helpful about encouraging us to find our the ways in which we relate with other creatures who seem distant. Um, but yeah, I, I guess how do we how do we find those relationships when they do seem too distant? 
Oh, Lori, is it okay if I say a word about insects? I would love that, but I just I do want to just say oh. something right before you talk about insects because I would love you to talk about insects. But I did want to just say that one of the other things that's really important in our work and that we think is important in general is turning to um, sort of literary reflections or other ways of connecting. So it doesn't have to be direct. It doesn't have to be like you need to see the animal in order to understand what's happening, but often you can get a really robust um, understanding and sort of see them anew through um, various kinds of artistic and or literary gestures. Mm-hmm. And, well, that's, but, that's really important. Yeah, I, to quickly interject, I think you you mentioned the book, uh, the the documentary "My Octopus Teacher," as an example of something that gives makes the viewer look at octopuses in a totally different way than they might have otherwise. Um, and yeah, I, I think I love stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I would absolutely love to talk about insects, Alice. <laughs> oh, well, I, I mean, I just thought it, uh, it fit with your question, but, but I mean, I think the point that Lori's making is really important. And if, if for those who, I mean, we were delighted if someone opens the book and reads it, there are lots of literary sources and lots of scientific ones too in the book. Um, but, but we are offering readers a chance to engage with some of the cases we're talking about. Um, by experiencing um, really rich writing about some of the creatures in question. But the point of talking about insects is to bring out how the approach we're taking. Um, Dayton, you were talking about how, you know, if you emphasize seeing, it's not really easy for me to see a mosquito or a tick. We do write about mosquitoes and ticks. And and one of the things that, that we're saying and saying the approach that we're advocating is more helpful is you do get implicit or explicit rankings of forms of animal life in utilitarian or rights-based theories because you're saying, well, what's the ground of this right? And to what extent does this creature have it? Or what's the ground of my, you know, um, claim to be treated well. Well, it's the extent to which I, I have interest in not suffering and I may not be the kind of creature who suffers very much. So you wind up with a ranking and insects always wind up towards the bottom. And, and one of the things we're suggesting, which we've been saying is that this kind of ranking turns out to be a mere prejudice that keeps us from seeing what we need to see. And in the case of some of the creatures that we often overlook, like insects, Part of what we're overseeing or neglecting, not bringing into focus, is ecological relations with them um, that are often conflictual, but overlooking them leads us to respond to to those relationships in ways that are often humanly counterproductive, not to mention often lethal for other animals in the ecosystem. So one obvious case is that, you know, we are in conflictual relationships with with um, mosquitoes and ticks, but the use of toxic insecticides the way that human beings have often, that we've often used them, can kill many more creatures than the insects we regard as pests. Um, and wind up having harmful effects on human populations and many other animal populations. So there's no suggestion in our book that you can eliminate conflict. Life on Earth has involved predatory and conflictual relations for hundreds of millions of years, but but the kind of attention we're exhorting 
and calling for is attention to um, e ways in which we're ecologically interdependent um, and that will make possible forms of response um, that are sensitive to those um, ecological relationships. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that was, my next question was about ticks. Um, and <laughs> that, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to cover. And so I think maybe to, to end on a, a last question is, um, you, you mentioned that some other theories might be, um, more direct in telling you what to do, um, in a way that, maybe can can feel helpful um but may or may not be sort of actually productive or as productive as it could be um but i i do think you know as we orient ourselves um try to orient ourselves in a different way to other animals and learns to see and hear and experience them in different ways what um you know i why does it <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. The the blunt way would be like, why does it matter? Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think I, I talk to, I like reading philosophy and talking to philosophers sometimes on this podcast. Um, and obviously there are, it's usually morally and politically relevant how we relate to the rest of life on this planet. Um, so maybe there's an obvious way in which it's extremely important. Um, but yeah, like what... Um, what lessons are there or how can we move forward from this? Absolutely. Lori, go for it. And, and okay. I'll weigh in if I want to, but I know okay. there, this is so important. It is really, it is so important. And I just want to say a couple of things. Um, as, as I was alluding to earlier when we were talking about the, the sort of traditional um, theories, I just want to highlight that, you know, animal ethics under both utilitarian and the rights-based theories has been sort of on so uh, open to discussion and in as you said earlier you learned it in a classroom in college so many people do we teach it in college i learned it in college we all you know this is all something that that's been happening for decades and animals and the planet are in worse shape now than they were <laughs> when this started so that in itself should give everyone pause about the actual efficacy and of these kind ways of thinking it's not making um on their own terms it's not making the kind of difference um that i think everyone who advocated for those um sort of different theories at wanted so on their own terms it's not doing what it was supposed to do but the thing that we can do and i think is really important to be thinking about as we confront the animal crisis is we can be thinking about being in solidarity with other liberatory social justice movements. And it's in those contexts. And this gets back to what Alice was um, saying earlier about dehumanization and de-animalization. What we're trying to do in the book is show the ways that systems of thought um, link these various harms that humans and animals experience. So our, our struggle to end that harm, to end that violence, to end that exploitation and oppression and discrimination is to join together, um, not just in our thinking, but in our actions and work towards reimagining how we can go on outside of those frameworks that have um, not really led to a better world. Mm -hmm. 
So, Lori, can I add? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know if you were. So, yeah. one way to, to to describe what happens, what what the ambition of the book, of our book, our work together here is, is a paradigm shift in how we see the social and political systems that shed light on, in, in ways that shed light on non-economic values, values like human and animal dignity that truly oppositional forms of life need to embody. And that's a, that's an abstract way of talking about what we're talking about. But at the end of the book, we talk about a variety of social movements which embody these values. We talk about indigenous land defenses, youth climate strikes, sanctuary movements. Um, and sometimes you're talking about embodying new values within existing systems or forming what some people call revolutionary commons, trying to form separate space where you, where you're working together in a community to really actualize values that are hard to protect, um, within larger social structures. But, but being really concrete about some of those social movements, that um, that somebody who's taken by, grabbed by the horror of the animal crisis um, might want to move with, that is something that, that we hope to have an effect on. Well, thank you both. Um, is there anything else either of you want to add on something we've talked about or something we didn't? Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having I feel like you gave us a chance to talk about what we really wanted to talk about. I'm really grateful to you for having us on. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to you for coming on and for writing the book. It's Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. The authors are Alice Crary and Lori Gruen. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for sharing with us all. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you got something out of it, please consider liking, following, sharing it with a friend, sharing it on social media, anything to help get the word out. Um, if you want more, subscribe to my free weekly newsletter. Please help support this podcast uh, on Patreon. And yeah, you know, Lori mentioned um, how literary techniques can can be a way of helping us know other animals. Um, we also sometimes talk about fiction in this podcast. We read fiction in the book club. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that we're we're interested to in this storytelling animals project. Um, So I'm glad she mentioned that, and I hope you'll join us on this continuing journey. Have a good day.